Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello and welcome to Genealogy Gems Podcast episode number 182. We're going to shake things up a little bit in this episode, and we're going to bypass the news and the mailbox because I have an interview for you that I think is worth devoting the entire episode to. Now, you know me, I I love looking outside the genealogy box to discover strategies and inspirational stories that can help us be better family historians. Well, in today's episode, we're going to head back to World War II an event that in some way touched the lives of every genealogist's family. And we're going to hear an incredible tale of deception, while at the same time, gather research strategies, interview techniques, and compelling storytelling methods that I know that you're going to love and be able to apply to your own family history. So let's get started. I've learned one thing in genealogy is that things aren't always as they seem. And a unique example of this comes out of World War II. In the summer of 1944, a hand-picked group of young GIs landed in France to conduct a secret mission. They were to create an elaborate facade of military might for their audience, the German army. So there's 1,100 men who have one goal to fool the enemy into believing that they were an American army thousands strong and draw their attention away from the actual fighting troops. Get ready to go behind the curtain of the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops known as the Ghost Army with my very special guest, Rick Beyer. He is the author of the book, The Ghost Army of World War II, how one top secret unit deceived the enemy with inflatable tanks, sound effects, and other audacious bakery. Hi, Rick. Hi, how are you doing? I am doing great. And I'm just devouring this book. It's absolutely fascinating. And and from a couple of different standpoints, one, you're just telling this amazing story that I think World War II touches all of our lives and our family history in some way. Um, but you're also an amazing, compelling storyteller. So I've got so many questions for you. Well, shoot, I'm here to answer them all. So that's really good. And I, I will just say that my co-author, Elizabeth Sales, and I both really, uh, her dad was in this strange unit. I've been very fascinated by it for the last 10 years. So we are so pleased that uh, that you like the book and that uh, and that you feel that the story is well told. Well, set the stage for us. So there's three divisions of this ghost army, and uh, what were they doing? Right. So first of all, the official name of this unit was the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. I always think that's the first piece of deception, right? Because it's really a boring name for a really fascinating <laughs> unit. And so their their goal is 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 as you said battlefield deception, and they're basically a traveling roadshow capable of setting up a deception, doing it for a few days, packing it up, and then doing another one someplace else, you know, a week later. And they're multimedia. So as you said, they had three different uh, units inside this unit uh, doing three uh, kinds of deception, and then they would all work together for the same goal. So the three different kinds of deception are visual sonic and radio and just in brief the visual deception is inflatable tanks and trucks and artillery and anything you can imagine that can be set up to create tableaus 
so that from the air, enemy reconnaissance, it looks, oh, my goodness, there's a tank division here, um, or there's an infantry division with artillery here, or whatever. The sonic deception involved recording sounds uh, and then playing them back from giant speakers on half-tracks, which is a kind of military vehicle, so that they could, with a series of, of these uh, half-tracks uh, you know, lined up on a road or something, they could make it seem like, a, a, say, a division is moving in down the road at night, and they had lots of different sounds, so they could simulate all sorts of different things. And then radio just involves just what you might imagine. Any particular army unit is going to have all sorts of uh, radio communications inside itself and with headquarters. So they had a set of radio operators who were sending out these fake radio communications. So they kind of went to war with these three kinds of deception all working together to create the phony picture that they wanted the enemy to believe so that the enemy might think that there's 30,000 men with tanks and a bunch of stuff in a certain spot when in fact there's you know less than a thousand who have nothing but inflatables and sound effects. <laughs> they were really taking advantage of um, how strong our imaginations are, weren't they? Because they were creating this feeling and this sense, even though their eyes weren't necessarily, I mean, their eyes saw the, the rubber tanks from a distance, but they weren't up close and, and having full, you know, total proof. Uh, just, it's incredible. Do you know where this whole idea of the power of deception, has that been around a long time in military warfare? Well, first of all, let me just say that you really hit on something when you, when you talked about imagination, because this really is a theater of the mind. It's a question of yes. trying to put yourself in the position of that enemy intelligence officer and what can you do what false information can you feed that builds up a phony picture in their mind and it really is a form of of almost uh telepathic manipulation <laughs> and it does play on our on our minds um uh, the way that we can take certain facts that come in and then try to tie them together and connect them and see what, what's going on. And it plays on that, and it plays on our imagination. So now, military deception is really old. Obviously, it goes back to the time of the Trojan horse. Right. Um, I always say the Trojan horse worked really well the first time. Uh, <laughs> you never hear that story about how the Greeks did it the second time. So it was kind of a, right. kind of a, a limited a type of deception. Um and, and all of the great military thinkers going back to China, going back to Napoleon and, and in all throughout warfare have used deception. Military experts say that the army that doesn't use deception can't win. So it's been around a long time. What the ghost army did that was really different, uh, a couple of things. One is that they were... Um, uh, as I said, they were they were dedicated to deception. So these weren't like a few soldiers will have work on deception during this battle and then we'll put them back in the regular fighting troops. So they're dedicated to deception. They're mobile. So they have a traveling roadshow. It's just really, it is just like a, a theater group that can come to your town, set up and do the play for a week and then drive on and do another play in the next town over a week later. And they're, yeah. and they're multimedia. I mean, think about that. They are projecting um, false information on, in all these different media, visual, sonic, and radio. And maybe we'll talk later. They developed a fourth, you know, a fourth dimension of deception while they were on the battlefields of Europe. So in those ways... The 23rd, the Ghost Army, was very unique. No, you're Absolutely. not supposed to say very unique. So it was unique. <laughs> exactly. Well, 
And I was reading uh, in the book early on, you mentioned that there's a very famous actor who was really advocating using this type of warfare in the Navy, and that was Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Not a surprise that an artistic guy uh, who grew up with an amazing, you know, one of the most popular actors of all time, his father, um, creating imagination and deception, if you will, and, and he really implemented that. You know, of particular interest to me was um, the sonic deception, because, you know, when I started this podcast back in uh, 2007, I think podcasting technology had only been around like a year and a half. So it wouldn't have been possible to uh, produce a show like this just a couple of years before. And that brings me to the technology really played a big role in the sound that the ghost army was using because I know in the film you show the actual wire, this wire technology that they were using. And um, some of that recording capability didn't exist just a few years before. Did it tell us about that? Right. So, so the idea of sonic uh, deception, of course, is that we are going to play sounds that make it seem like something is happening. And this really is kind of playing on imagination because it's usually at night and you're, you know, maybe the enemy's got a listening post and they're hearing something. Right. And you know how at night you hear a sound, out outside where you're trying to go to sleep or something, you build up in your whole imagination about how a burglar is coming in and all this right. happening. Or maybe that's just me. But, <laughs> but it's playing on that idea. But the technology was really new. So um, they what they because they recorded the sounds onto these sound effects records. But then the and they'd been around a while. Records had been around a while. But then that to really make it accurate, they had to mix a particular show together so you're doing sound mixing which is already something new and now they and what do you mix it onto because you can't really they don't have the capability in the field to mix it onto another record so they mixed right. it onto something called the wire recorder and the wire recorder is the predecessor of the tape recorder you know these days when i'm explaining this i sort of say before the uh, iPhone, there was the iPod, and before the iPod, there was the Walkman, and before the Walkman, right. there was the cassette recorder, before the cassette recorder, there was the tape recorder, okay, and before the tape recorder, there was the wire recorder, and the wow. wire looks like a fishing line. It is very, very thin, and about two miles of wire can record 30 minutes of sound. So this is a brand new technology in the 1940s that they are utilizing. So this is something that five years earlier, maybe they wouldn't, it wouldn't have been perfected and able for them to do. And of course, the other thing that's great about that is that because it's new, it means it's something that is unexpected, right? It's not something yes. that anybody has had time to think about. Like nowadays, if you were saying, oh, we're going to do a sonic uh, deception, it might still work, but it's not going to be unexpected or new because everybody knows that there's all sorts of technology for recording very realistic sounds and playing them back. But this was something pretty new at that time. Absolutely. You know, I was looking, I'm looking at page 47, and you're talking about the Doppler effect. And I thought, this is incredible, because not only was this just totally new, and they're figuring out how to mix the sound and everything, but they're also dealing with um, how it could be a giveaway 
how sound moves and this Doppler effect and the effect that it has on the trucks. And, and they were solving those questions and those problems real time. It, it was just incredible. Right, and really fast. And yeah. the Doppler effect, it's the thing when we say if a race car goes by us and it goes, and, right. and the, the sound tone changes, right? And so if you record a vehicle and that happens, uh, it's going to sound like it just went by you, but if you're a, a observer 10 miles away, that's going to be a giveaway. And that is really an example of the kind of, of, of detail that they had to get right to carry off these deceptions. It's like if you make a realistic painting, a trompe l'oeil painting, a beautiful mm -hmm. realistic painting, let's say, of a hole in the sidewalk with a dragon underneath it. And we've seen all seen these things on the internet, and they're amazing looking. But if you get one little shadow wrong, the whole thing suddenly doesn't seem realistic anymore. And yeah, exactly. that, that's the kind of detail, whether it was on that uh, uh, recording that way on the sonic deception, and they, and they recorded all sorts of, like, they recorded sounds of tanks going uphill or tanks going downhill tanks changing gears, of, of people uh, setting up bridges, of people uh, unloading from trucks, all these different things so that they could create really realistic, detailed scenarios that would be, have, be so convincing that the observer who's listening five miles away, they might not pick up every detail, but their mind is not then suddenly going, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this. And that's right. part of the magic of their deception. If they even plant one seed of doubt. I mean, that could mean lives, right? right. They were really saving lives out there. Right. Well, I, I always say that is the, the big, the big uh, accomplishment of this unit, I think, is in saving lives. And you might say, well, how exactly is what they're doing saving lives? Well, think about it. If you're going to, um, uh, let's say that you're, in, in one case, they might be holding a part of the line that is, that is weakly held. And so by being there, maybe they're discouraging the enemy from trying to get through a weak part of the line and attack from the rear. Or in another case, they might make it seem um, like there was a deception at the end of the war where they were masking uh, a crossing of the Rhine River. So they're trying to make it seem like the 9th U.S. Army was crossing the Rhine River 10 miles away from where it really was. So hopefully you've drawn enemy soldiers to the spot of the false crossing, that saves lives when you do the real crossing. And yes, yeah. any detail wrong, one detail wrong, and you, it, it's like, a, it's like the, the thread in the sweater, right? You, you pull on the one thread and you start pulling and the whole sweater can unravel. <laughs> exactly. And well, an, ex get, right? an example of that was the deflated gun barrels. Tell the listeners about they were had to deal with the fact that what if these rubber tanks start to deflate? I mean, air doesn't last forever. Yes, well, you know, I live in um, uh, New England, and we've learned a lot about deflation here in the last uh, seven months <laughs> with the New England Patriots and Deflategate. Yeah. But the Ghost Army knew all about deflation and the and the results of the ideal gas law because um, you set up a, a, a dummy tank at night when it's... Um, uh, a certain temperature because if so first of all if it warms up in a certain way then you're going to get uh, things are going to get overinflated but if it cools down a gun barrel could get deflated now a gun barrel that's deflated sags in a very visually unappealing and unrealistic <laughs> way and uh, so you really want to avoid that as one of the soldiers said you know we didn't have any guns that pointed into the ground like that <laughs> Right. So you had to tend the tanks. They, they had to tend them very carefully to make sure that they were always going to be giving 
a um, you know a realistic picture to the enemy. And the other result of this, of course, I've interviewed many. Uh, 80 and 90 year old veterans about uh, ghost army deceptions and uh, every one of them has a good Viagra joke about the deflated gun barrels. <laughs> so exactly. just something you have to live with as a yeah. filmmaker and historian. It's a real visual. I, I hope that when everybody gets done listening to this, they will go check out your film, which is, uh, I've watched it on Amazon um, because it's quite a visual. More with Rick Beyer and the Ghost Army right after this. Our sponsor for this episode is MyHeritage. Now, I know that you tune in to the Genealogy Gems podcast because you know that I'm going to carefully vet the products that come across my desk. And I'm only going to bring to this show the ones that I really think are the real gems. Well, MyHeritage.com is in that category, and I couldn't be happier that they've signed on to support and sponsor this free podcast. I've spent the last several months really digging into MyHeritage, and I found some powerful tools that I think you really need in your genealogy tool belt. First of all, they have over 70 million members worldwide. If you're serious about making connections in the country where your ancestors once lived, hands down, MyHeritage is the place that you want to be. Get your tree posted on their website and start to see the magic as they automatically match it up with other trees, not just with genealogists in the country where you live, but genealogists around the world. Then there's MyHeritage's unique and powerful search system. It's called Record Matches. It constantly calls 5 billion historical records for your family. It's the only family history interface out there using semantic analysis to search newspaper articles, books, and other free text documents. It's also the first to translate names between languages. And I personally like that the matches from the historical newspaper collection at MyHeritage, they show up towards the top of the results list. So visit MyHeritage.com. It's free to get started, so there's really no reason to wait. And there are billions of reasons to try it out. Visit MyHeritage.com. You were telling a story also that I just think is hysterical about the French. Uh, there were a couple of French guys who came upon some tanks with some problems. Tell us what was happening. Well, this is a story told to me by Arthur Shillstone, one of the veterans of this unit and a tremendous uh, gentleman and, uh, and illustrator, uh, painter. And Arthur was a young corporal, and, and they, they were setting up some of their tanks in France, and this was early on, so they weren't necessarily quite as expert at keeping people away from this as they were doing it. And somehow a couple of Frenchmen blundered through the security perimeter. They were on bicycles. And now Arthur's trying to shoo them away. And he said, you know, they weren't looking at me. They were looking over my shoulder. And what they thought they saw was four GIs lifting a 40-ton Sherman tank <laughs> and turning it around. And he said, they were looking at me and they were looking for answers, and finally, I just told them, you know, the Americans are very strong. 
<laughs> and, and I love that. Yeah, and and uh, and you know, it's um and Arthur uh, painted that actually. He made a painting of that uh, after the war that we used both in the film and and it's in the book. And of course, you know since you've looked at the book that we have hundreds of photos and artworks and maps and diagrams and memos and everything else uh, it's a very visual we we have tried to tell a story in a very visual way in addition to just you know some good storytelling well and that's exactly why i thought that uh, our family history listening audience would be so captivated by this not only this great story but also the way you told it and the way that you used uh, graphics and things that just kind of keep people pulled in and um and i wanted to talk about that a little bit because well first of all i know uh you talked about interviewing some of the guys and uh, I, I was looking at some old newspapers online and back in 1945 when chesney comes back uh, there's an article soldiers unit fought with rubber guns dummy tanks so they when they got back they could kind of allude to and talk a little bit about what had happened but they were really under wraps for a long time weren't they they couldn't talk about this story the the secrecy is a really complicated issue and um and i still not sure that i have grasped exactly to what degree this was secret and how it was kept secret but when they came back from the war, they, they, during the war, obviously, it's incredibly secret. And they are not supposed to tell anybody, any fellow soldiers, anybody outside the unit, court-martial offense. So they come back, and a soldier in July 1945 named Sebastian Messina spills the beans to his hometown newspaper in Worcester, Massachusetts. And so they uh, write an article and then they send it to the censors because it's wartime. So there's, there is censorship. Right. And the army says, don't print this. Uh, it's secret. And so then the war ends. Uh, we drop the bomb. Japan surrenders. And the paper decides they can print it. And so they print the story, and it and it then leads to all these other stories. Now, I think the Army still wanted to keep it secret. I think the paper kind of jumped the gun. But it leads to a burst of publicity. But, but then the Army somehow pretty effectively shuts that down, so that after this burst of publicity in 1945, there really isn't anything for 35 or 40 years after that. And, um, and many of the soldiers say that they were told to keep it secret. Not all of them say that. But... But but many of them, but the officers seem to have been given a really strong admonition, and the guys in the sonic unit seem to have been given a very strong secrecy admonition. And I think, you know, if you're you're trying to piece it together, I would say that the that the army was not particularly concerned about people talking about inflatable tanks, but they were concerned about the methodologies of how they put these deceptions together, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, being, being out there and being too well known. So they're trying to keep that uh, secret. And in fact, some of the, um, one of the soldiers in the unit, an officer in the unit, went on to become a, uh, an aide to President Eisenhower. He tried several times to get the official history of the unit declassified. That's a document that's in the National Archives. And he, mm -hmm. and he couldn't do it. The Army wouldn't declassify it. So clearly they were trying during the 50s and 60s to keep it secret. And then eventually by the, by the 80s, they were much less interested in doing so. And then it really was out. And, and they probably didn't know if they'd want to turn around and use this again. They had the Cold War going on right. and, you know, all these concerns. Right. 
and you talked about um, interviewing these guys. And, you know, when we're doing family research, we spend a lot of time interviewing our older relatives. And you were interviewing people who, like you said, many of them had for years and years and years felt like they couldn't even tell their wives what they had done. Um, how did you get such great interviews? How did you, more importantly, earn their trust so that they would talk to you about the missions? And um, and there were some very personal feelings and stories that they shared. How, how did you do that as a researcher? Well, um, you know, I originally discovered the story through somebody whose uncle was in the unit. And so we went to the first, actually the last reunion that they had, which was in 2005. And so part of it was that we kind of started out with a, with a little bit of a family connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as an interviewer, uh, I, and I did almost all the interviews, I try to be um, very low-key with people. I always try to let them know that, that even though there's a camera on and there's lights on and there's a microphone attached to them, that, it's, <laughs> that this, is, this is okay. This is, this is just us talking. And I usually try to uh, make some jokes. Or I, One of the things I do, I always start out every interview the same way. I say, well, because everybody's set up and now they're, you know, you've got somebody in there like looking at the lights and everything. I say, okay, well, the first question is the hardest. What's your name? How do you spell it? What mm-hmm. unit were you in during the war? Okay, so that's pretty easy. They can get that. And, and then I try not to, you know, I try to start out by asking, um, you know, pretty low-key questions and, and letting them amplify a little bit and seeing where they're comfortable going. And I think it's also important, you know, I, I, um, I did a fair amount of research before the first interview, and especially as time went by, and I, you know, these interviews took place over a number of years that I did. Um, I learned more and more. And, and so I, I could really, um, somebody would start to tell me about something and I knew what they were talking about. Right. And that, and that, that's a comfort level with people. And I remember, you know, um, it, it is hard to get people to relax when you're putting them on camera. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and there's lots of, you know, you, you, you nod when they're talking, you try to give them visual feedback that you're interested in what they're saying, you try to pay attention to them and not stare at the next question. But I had one guy and he was talking and he kept kind of, um, I could tell he was censoring himself, you know, mm-hmm. was, he was um, trying to avoid using um, four-letter words. And I finally said, look, uh, Dick, you know, it doesn't matter to me what you say. You can say blankety blank or blank or the blanking blank blank thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's okay because, you know what, if I really want to use it and I really uh, can't edit around that, I'll, 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 I'll figure it out, you know. So please don't worry about that. And, he, and then he started to relax because then he felt like he could be himself and he could tell the stories and in fact and he used a lot of salty language and in fact you know almost none of it appears in the film because i you know because you can edit around it right and i think i'm not trying to make him look like a like a like a you know an old an old sailor right a, a, <laughs> a kind of a um uh spewing invective but but it's just kind of what made him relax and so i don't know those are, are some of the techniques and i think that 
the longer the project went on, the more people came to understand that that I was a, a caretaker for the project. And okay. what was amazing was um, how people would send me things. Um, people who I, you know, maybe I'd only met once, or 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 had in some cases had never met. They would say, "Oh, I'll send you my notebook." And like the, the next day in the mail, or two days later in the mail, in the U.S. mail, I would get a box <laughs> that was somebody's. Um, you know, scrapbook full of World War II photos, irreplaceable, that they had just yeah. mailed to me. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It shows the trust level that they had with you. You you hit on a couple of really important things. One, you let him use his own language, which actually let him tap into his own emotion, because that language was part of the emotion. And it, to cut that out, he can't go there totally. And And two, you kind of became one of them, didn't you? I mean, they trust you because they know that you're invested and you have the background. And, and in a sense, you become a, a conduit of, you're bringing the others you've talked to, to the table. Maybe they haven't even seen them. I mean, I think that's so parallel to what we do as family historians is that we get to know the family. We, we start to be the person that everybody starts mailing their stuff to. And I had a neighbor. We were talking on the street. It was It was getting to be dusk. And and she says, oh, you're the genealogist who just moved in the neighborhood. And this guy knew she runs in her house and she hands me this uh, entire book that somebody had typed up and says, here, take a look at this and tell me what you think. And didn't even think twice about when I was going to give it back or whatever. But um, she just wanted to share it and knew that I knew something about it. And I think it sounds like when you came to these interviews, you had something to share with them through your past interviews and and you also uh were invested like you say i think that's right and i think and i think part of that is time you know when you yeah. when you when you devote the time to something and you meet the people you talk to the people they they begin to to get that that you are as you say you're committed to it you're like a member of the family um i i hope i never uh, start to confuse and think that i was there in world war ii but, uh, and think, we know a couple of uh, broadcasters who got right, confused. Right, about I know. Those I know it can happen, so I have to look out for it. Uh, I have to be careful of using the phrase "we" when I talk That's about right. the Ghost Army. It would uh, sometimes <laughs> because it it does feel like I've kind of adopted this. You know, these are my guys. Yeah. Uh, and I, but I think that that's that's what what transfers. You know, if you're if you're. Sort of, you know, uh, it's also a matter of I've taken. I take calls from these guys. I mean, um, even now, almost every day, I get called oh. by somebody in this unit or a family member. Or I see emails from family members or Facebook posts, and so there's a lot of of communication that's still going on. And and I'm, I mean, I'm still meeting people. I'm still getting material um, that I hadn't seen before. And you know, we're ten yeah. years out now, so uh, I do think that you know, that that is a good parallel, that, that building trust um, by demonstrating your, your commitment and being there over a period of time. And I think that there were people who were skeptical, some of them, not too many, but some who were skeptical when we started and who mm -hmm. became less skeptical as time went by. Did you know that you were going to do a film at the same time as you were working on the book? Oh, or was that after the fact? No, it's the other way around, actually. So, oh. so I was a filmmaker um, uh, before I ever wrote a book. And um, so I, when I came across this story in 2005, I thought it would make a cool documentary film. And I 
pitched mm-hmm. it to the History Channel because that's who I had done a lot of work for. And they were not interested in it for reasons that you know we don't need to go into in detail. Um, History Channel has changed a lot over the yeah. And I and I and and then I had kind of this moment where either I say okay never mind and I move on to the next thing, or um, I say okay is there some other way to do it? And I decided to work on it as an independent project because I just thought it was a story that really should not be left by the side of the road. And I started to work on it as an independent project and to raise the money myself to make the film. Because I, 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 I thought, well, maybe I could get it to be on PBS. How hard can it be? <laughs> and so it, eight years later, it, it got on PBS. And that's an indication of how hard it can be. And it, yeah. I had to raise, I mean, I raised about $300,000. Most of it was from individual donors. Uh, this was a huge undertaking. And of course, I was I was really not trying to raise money from the guys in the unit or their families. Some of them did donate, but I, that was not where I was going after money from. And so... Um, that's one of the reasons it took so long, but it was also, there were a lot of other reasons it took a long time too. And I think, you know, if you had asked me when, if you said to me when I started, Rick, it's going to be eight years before this thing is done. I think I would have said, okay, moving on Yeah. Today, right now. Um, and, and this is before Kickstarter, right? Oh, right. Right. It was yeah. Before Kickstarter. I, I, I mean, I, I, and I did use Kickstarter eventually, but it only really appeared in the middle of this process. I always say to the guys, you know, you know, here's the thing. It took me about twice as long to make the film as it took you to fight World War II. Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, but, it, but I had no idea when I started that this was going to become kind of um, like a life project. And that's yeah. really what it's become. I mean, it's it's ten years now, and and it's not really over because now the movie rights have been optioned, and I'm still speaking about it and and talking about it in a lot of places, and and so that was kind of a a, a surprise. But in the end, I'm glad I embraced it, and and I think it it you know so it led to the film first, and that appeared in 2013, and it was I had been trying to get people interested in the idea of a of a visual book about it and that um was really helped by the film being on and so then the book of course just came out a few months ago we're going to take a quick break hear from the sponsors who make this free show possible and get right back to the ghost army You know, now that I've moved to Texas and what they lovingly call Tornado Alley, I'm more aware than ever that if anything ever happened to my genealogy files, I would be devastated. And boy, have my files expanded since I started this research at the ripe old age of eight years old. As genealogists, we don't just have paper files anymore, but we also have digital files like our genealogy database and precious old photos that we've spent hours scanning. No matter where we upload our family tree or anything else relating to our family history on the web, the responsibility for the total safety and security of our files lies with us. That's why I'm so proud to announce that Backblaze is now the official backup of Lisa Louise Cook and Genealogy Gems. For the past few years, I've been researching and I've been test driving backup services and hands down, Backblaze is my choice. It's certainly the easiest service to use. And I love their free app that allows me to access all my files on my smartphone and my tablet. Plus, it backs up everything, including my video files. 
Yikes, I didn't realize before looking at Backblaze that other services skip over backing up videos. So don't wait another day to ensure that all your files are safe and secure. Back them up like I do with Backblaze. Head to backblaze.com slash Lisa and scroll down. You'll see my smiling face there and a great offer. Just 50 bucks for a year's peace of mind and the best cloud backup around. Go to backblaze.com slash Lisa. You know, I always advise people to keep their master family trees at home on their own computers, not online. The family tree software I recommend is Roots Magic, and I'm pleased to announce that Roots Magic 7 is out and it's better than ever. Now, what do I love most about this new update? It's got to be the automatic hinting feature. It's like Google Alerts for genealogy websites. RootsMagic now automatically searches sites like FamilySearch and MyHeritage for possible matches to your tree. You're going to see light bulb hints appear whenever a match is found. Clicking the light bulb will open a web browser with matching records. They've got new accounts that let you easily publish and maintain multiple trees online, whether publicly or privately. And data management is easy with the new data clean feature that helps you quickly find and fix possible problems with names and places. Or use the file compare feature to look at two different trees side by side and transfer information between them. These are just some of the dozens of new enhancements. You can give it a try right away with no risk with the free edition called Roots Magic 7 Essentials. So what are you waiting for? Go to rootsmagic.com. You'll see pretty quickly why professionals and beginners alike choose Roots Magic. Let's talk about the book as far as storytelling. You know, I was when I was reading this article about Major Chesney, it says that they were in charge of 100,000 displaced persons, some of whom would appear in the book. And I looked at the book and I thought, there's artwork in here of these displaced persons, people left with nothing after the war. And, and I couldn't help but think as a family historian, what happens if somebody opens this book and they, they recognize a face or something? I, it was just so touching to me how personal all the artwork was. How in the world did you decide what went in and what went out? And uh, it looks like you had quite an abundance of material to work with. Well, there's about nine things in that question I want to address. And so I know, sorry. Going to be here. Do we have another three or four hours? Of course. <laughs> yes, I'm yours. Come on. <laughs> well, um, I mean, first of all, we should point out to people who haven't seen the book, there were a lot of artists in the visual deception unit. And they, right. the Army recruited artists in order to, um, to, uh, to you know, use their art skills in setting up these, these, these giant visual deception installations. And um, so many of them spent the wartime painting and sketching in their spare time the same way that I might write in a diary or somebody else might take photos. And so, uh, and some of them went on to become famous after the war, most especially Bill Blass, the fashion designer, possibly the mm -hmm. best known one. But so we have included in the book a lot of a lot of artworks, and I have been collecting these artworks for um, uh, um, for for ten years. And I don't mean physically collecting them because most of them stay in the collections of the families, but with collecting kind of digital 
versions of them. And I do think that they offer an amazing personal view of what it was like to be in the war zone in 1944 and 45. Because it's not like action military art, it's bombed out churches, and it's orphan Mm -hmm. children, and it's paintings of each other, and all sorts of stuff like that. And um, so then at the end of the war, right, they, they, their deception mission is done and they're guarding a displaced persons camp. And I, and I thought that was really interesting because I don't even think people understand the idea now of displaced persons, that these were people who had been slave laborers uh, in Nazi Germany. They came from Russia, Hungary, Poland, Italy, all these places. And now there's the question of how do you take care of them? How do you repatriate them? Do they want to be repatriated? And so mm-hmm. are, the soldiers are kind of thrust into that, and they're interacting with these people. And as you say, there's all these these paintings and 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 sketches of them. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the selection of images, my co-author Elizabeth Sales, who is herself an illustrator, and uh, whose father Bill Sales was one of the artists uh, in the unit, and his work is in the book. She uh, really curated the book, and I just think she did an amazing, amazing job of of selecting the artwork, which comes from many, many sources. And there's a lot more of it than than what's in the book. And I do think you know it, it's very interesting the idea of that people might see something that somebody from the displaced persons camp might see something. But it goes beyond that. There's a, um, there's a, uh, now I'm leafing, can you hear? I'm leafing through the book to find this. There is a painting of a small boy on page um, uh, 79. His name is Paul Grave. And, well, guess what? Um, through a series of circumstances, um, we were visiting this town where this picture was painted in uh, Trevière, France, and we had the, a copy of this picture, and somebody there knew that family, and we met his brother on that day, and then a few weeks ago when I was back in Trevière, I met Paul. He's a, oh my he's a retired Renault engineer, uh, probably about 80 years old now. A, a delightful man doesn't speak any English, but uh, his son was there, and he translated. And um, and so, yeah, he he is he is somebody who quite literally, you know, has found himself uh, uh, in this book. And I have I have to tell you, um, there not just from the paintings, but also from the photos, I got a, a several circumstances where people um, one great one somebody saw a name. On the screen, there was a drawing, a, a drawing of a man on the screen, and they saw there was a name on it, and they thought, "Oh, is that so and so's father? That's the same name." And they asked this person, and they didn't even know that their father was in the ghost army, but they had the same drawing. I mean, they had a copy of the wow. same drawing, so they knew it was the same. They knew the connection was right, and they contacted me, and they were just, you know, I mean tearful i mean yeah. incredibly excited and i've had a a number of people who've kind of because of the because uh they see the film or they see the book and they see somebody in there who they recognize a name or they recognize a parent or something that, that it, it helps connect them to the story so that has been very very rewarding and very very cool that that's amazing and i'm sure it's amazing for the family i i don't know i get this sense that you were kind of picked for this somehow you got picked there's a big responsibility and here you know 
those kinds of things happen every day. One of my favorite pictures, I don't know why, is the picture of the lozenge box that held the paints. <laughs> I just think that's, and I think it's amazing that you included a photograph of an, a physical item like this um, because it just looks like, you know, five years of painting through, you know, the, uh, the meadows and the foxholes and all the places that they were at. I want to wrap with talking about storytelling because I think that you're so talented at that. And one of the things that jumps out in this book, and I think every genealogist who looks at this book is going to go, oh, if I could only put something like this together for my family because it's great stories, it's great imagery. And you know what you've got in here? You've got awesome chapter titles. <laughs> what? I can tell you put a lot of time into that. And, and you can't help but read one of these chapter titles and go, oh my gosh, I have to go turn to that chapter. I have to read it. I have to keep reading. And, you know, genealogists get a lot of uh, glazed over looks from their family members sometimes when they try to share the family history. No one's going to glaze over when they look at this book. What was your thought behind all this fantastic, the titles and the storytelling? How did you make it compelling so they wouldn't put it down? You know, I, well, first of all, I, um, uh, there's some, of, some of that is my experience in advertising, right? I spent 15 uh, years in advertising. There you go. I, I'm always trying to, yep. to get attention. I have <laughs> always had a personal interest um, in kind of um, the odd, quirky stories, in history, I mean, it's what drew me to the Ghost Army. But but beyond that, um, you know, I wrote a series of history books called "The Greatest Stories Never Told," and each one of them is a like a little uh, focused um, two hundred word story about some strange turning point in history. So I have a lot of experience, and and that book series came out of a series of history minutes I did for the History Channel. And I say all this by the way of saying I have a lot of experience in kind of very focused. Um, sort of short-form storytelling. And I, I get impatient with kind of wandering around. I want to get to the meat. I want to get to the interesting yes. stuff right away. And oh. that is always on my mind. So one of the things, two of the things, I, to answer your question, one, when doing the chapter headings, I mean, I did think about it. And I thought about what it's going to look like in the table of contents. And, you know, can a lot of them are quotes. Um, uh, you know, what is what is something that's, you know, rather than saying, July to August 1970, you know, 1944 or something as a chapter title. What can you do that really pulls the essence of it out there? Yes. And then yes. the other thing I did, I tried hard to do, is I tried to start every chapter with a story or with, in, a, in a moment. You know, there's an expression in storytelling, a Latin expression, in media res, which means to start in the middle of things. And so mm -hmm. if you think about it, the book starts in the middle of things because it starts with an operation that they're doing in um, September 1944. And kind of every chapter, now I have to look and see if this really happens, but most of the chapters kind of start a little bit in the middle of things and introduce a character or a story or something interesting to kind of get you going into the chapter. So I think that those are ways that I try to um, to to use storytelling and use some vivid language and 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 sort of word pictures to try to to attract and draw people. I love it. Fantastic advice. Amazing word pictures. Not trying to tell the whole kit and caboodle in one sitting, but getting to the meat of it. I love that. That's and that's what 
today's impatient <laughs> audience kind of wants, right. really, well, if you think, particularly our kids. If you think about it, this book, because it has a lot of pictures in it, um, and so it's very visual, and I'm a filmmaker, so it makes sense that I have mm-hmm. a lot of pictures in the book. It's about 40,000 words, 45,000 words, and, you know, a, a, a big... Um, Sort of a, a standard kind of nonfiction book, uh, it might be 150, 200,000 words. So this is kind of short by those standards. So it has to have very focused, very um, quick payoff storytelling to fit it all in there. And so I really tried to stay, you know, if, you, if, it, if it doesn't lead to something good right away, you know, I'm dropping it out. I'm moving on. And that's, that's, I think, good advice for anybody who's trying to write. Don't, don't try to put in every detail. If somebody wants every detail, they can go back and go into the files and dig it up. But 95% of the audience is looking for some, some good bits. Absolutely. Well, there's some good bits in this book. Uh, it's called The Ghost Army of World War II, How One Top Secret Unit Deceived the Enemy with Inflatable Tanks, Sound Effects, and Other Audacious Fakery. In the show notes for this episode, I will have links uh, over to Amazon, both for the book and for the film. You can always go visit Rick at rickbuyer.net. And Rick, I was hoping that um, you would send us off with a story. And it was a story as I was looking through rickbuyer.net. I noticed that the name of your production company was, I think, Plate of Peas. And here I came across a story that um, I know our family history audience will enjoy. Would you mind reading it for us? Well, sure. I'd be happy to. I mean, you know, this is a story, but this is, uh, can I give a little bit of explanation about it? Please, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is a story that um, that happened in my family, and um, I wrote it down really for the purpose of just writing it down. You know, I, I didn't really write it with the intention of it um, being published, um, but I wanted to capture something about uh, uh, my mother who's involved in this story. And it's a story, of course, that we had told a lot as a family, so you know, it uh, it was easy to remember. Um, and then it ended up being published and it's been translated into many languages and it became the title of my production company. And I, I mean, I just got an email the other day from French teachers, English teachers uh, in Quebec who are using this story to teach English. So it's had, it's had a lot wow. of life to it. But the story is called A Plate of Peas. And so here we go. My grandfather died when I was a small boy, and my grandmother started staying with us for about six months every year. She lived in a room that doubled as my father's office, which we referred to as the back room. She carried with her a powerful aroma. I don't know what kind of perfume she used, but it was the double-barreled, 90-proof, knockdown, rendered-the-victim-unconscious, moose-killing variety. She kept it in a huge atomizer and applied it frequently and liberally. It was almost impossible to go into her room and remain breathing for any length of time. When she would leave the house to go spend six months with my Aunt Lillian, my mother and sisters would throw open all the windows, strip the bed, take out the curtains and the rugs. Then they would spend several days washing and airing things out, trying frantically to make the pungent odor go away. This, then, was my grandmother at the time of the infamous pea incident. It took place at the Biltmore Hotel, which, to my eight-year-old mind, was just about the fanciest place to eat in all of Providence. My grandmother, my mother, and I were having lunch after a morning spent shopping. 
I grandly ordered a Salisbury steak, confident in the knowledge that beneath that fancy name was a good old hamburger with gravy. When brought to the table, it was accompanied by a plate of peas. I do not like peas now. I did not like peas then. I have always hated peas. It is a complete mystery to me why anyone would voluntarily eat peas. I did not eat them at home. I did not eat them at restaurants. And I certainly was not about to eat them now. Eat your peas, my grandmother said. Mother, said my mother in her warning voice, he doesn't like peas. Leave him alone. My grandmother did not reply. But there was a glint in her eye and a grim set to her jaw that signaled she was not going to be thwarted. She leaned in my direction, looked me in the eye, and uttered the fateful words that changed my life. I'll pay you five dollars if you eat those peas. I had absolutely no idea of the impending doom that was headed my way like a giant wrecking ball. I only knew that five dollars was an enormous, nearly unimaginable amount of money, and as awful as peas were, only one plate of them stood between me and the possession of that five dollars. I began to force the wretched things down my throat. My mother was livid. My grandmother had that self-satisfied look of someone who has thrown down an unbeatable trump card. I can do what I like, Ellen, and you can't stop me. My mother glared at her mother. She glared at me. No one can glare like my mother. If there were a glaring Olympics, she would undoubtedly win the gold medal. I, of course, kept shoving peas down my throat. The glares made me nervous, and every single pea made me want to throw up. But the magical image of that five dollars floated before me, and I finally gagged down every last one of them. My grandmother handed me the five dollars with a flourish. My mother continued to glare in silence, and the episode ended. Or so I thought. My grandmother left for Aunt Lillian's a few weeks later. That night, at dinner, my mother served two of my all-time favorite foods, meatloaf and mashed potatoes, and along with them came a big, steaming bowl of peas. She offered me some peas, and I, in the very last moments of my innocent youth, declined. My mother fixed me with a cold eye as she heaped a huge pile of peas onto my plate. And then came the words that were to haunt me for years. You ate them for money, she said. You can eat them for love. Oh, despair. Oh, devastation. Now, too late, came the dawning realization that I had unwittingly damned myself to a hell from which there was no escape. You ate them for money. You can eat them for love. What possible argument could I muster against that? There was none. Did I eat the peas? You bet I did. I ate them that day and every other time they were served thereafter. The five dollars were quickly spent. My grandmother passed away a few years later. 
but the legacy of the peas lived on, as it lives on to this day. If I so much as curl my lip when they are served, because, after all, I still hate the hard little things, my mother repeats the dreaded words one more time. You ate them for money, she said. You can eat them for love. I love that story. True, Thank you so much true story, for sharing true, true family story. Oh, that is so fantastic. Rick, this has just been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. I know I just took up your whole morning, but it was worth it. We're all gobbling it up. And I know we're going to really enjoy the Ghost Army book. It's, it's part of our Genealogy Gems book club. Tell us, what was the book you were reading the story from? That book is a book called I Thought My Father Was God and Other True Tales from NPR's National Story Project. And it was edited by Paul Oster, who uh, did the National Story Project on NPR a few years ago. And, and, and Paul actually read this story on uh, on NPR on All Things Considered one night, although he did mispronounce my name, but I have forgotten that. <laughs> so, well, I love the way you read it. Thank you so much for sharing it with my us. My great pleasure. I never mind reading the Plate of Peas story. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me for Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 182. If you enjoyed this episode, I sure hope that you'll share it with your friends and your family. I know a lot of you have the Genealogy Gems app and it's super easy to share any episode using the app. Just tap the episode and then tap and share it on Facebook, Twitter, or you can send it by email. Your friends are going to thank you, and it makes me feel really good that you're sharing these episodes that we work so hard on. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.